Welcome to the prolific teaching ministry of Pastor Emmanuel Iren, lead pastor of Celebration Church International. It is his vision to partner with you for your progress and joy in the faith. Ready, set, grow. Dear Jesus, reason one, you're not a fable. You're not a story in a playbook. We celebrate you, reason one. We are here on account of your name. Honor your name tonight. Reignite our passion as an army. Rekindle our sense of urgency. Show us where to run. Show us how high to jump. We are ready. Thank you, Father. In Jesus' mighty name we pray. Hallelujah. So tonight we're going to do a bit of Bible study, then we pray. And if you understand the theme of the month, you will understand why Bible study is important. Let me tell you this. God builds us by his word. And so Paul the apostle said, I commend you to God and the word of his grace that is able to build you and give you an inheritance amongst them that are sanctified. Our inheritance is in the word. You have to understand this. Say that with me. Say my inheritance is in the word. So, in as much as um, I would like to pray for you and all of that, the Lord has put in me a pressing, a pressing, a sense of urgency. Something we have to talk about. I want to talk to you about miracles and consecration. And I know it's an unusual title. Some people don't really understand the connection between the two. You're about to. Or you can put it this way, what to do with miracles? What to do with miracles? Are you with me this evening? What did I call it? So I want to start this way, you see. I want to start by asking and answering a question. What did the miracles in Jesus' ministry prove? Just in case you don't understand why that question is even important, you need to know that there is a message in the miracles. The miracles had a purpose that must be understood. And that is what we want to study. What did the miracles in Jesus' ministry prove? Number one, they proved that he was approved of God. They proved that he was approved of God. The Bible says in Acts chapter 2 verse 22, easy for you to remember, Acts 2, 2 22. It says, men of Israel, Peter preaching, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know. It says, a man attested by God, by miracles, wonders, 
and signs. He did them in your midst as you yourselves also know. So the miracles proved that he was approved by God. The second thing that the miracles in Jesus' ministry proved was the compassion of God. The compassion of God. It revealed something very important about the character of God. He is love. And he doesn't like to see people suffer. And so, what you need to pay attention is too is not just that Jesus healed the sick, but how he did it. What was his motivation? What was his drive? And so the Bible tells us in many places, many instances, the Bible is replete with examples where we are told that Jesus was moved with compassion, that it was his compassion that moved him to minister to the sick. In Mark chapter 1 verse 40, the Bible says, Now a leper came to him, Mark 1 40, imploring him, kneeling down to him and saying to him, If you are willing, make me clean. And in verse 41, the Bible says, Then Jesus moved with compassion, stretched out his hand and touched him. And said, I will be thou cleansed. It was compassion that moved him. And if Jesus indeed is the image of the Father, then it proves the compassion of God. Praise the Lord. In Matthew chapter 14, verse 14, turn your Bibles. See what it says. It says, and when Jesus went out, he saw a great multitude. He saw a great multitude and he was moved with compassion for them and healed their sick. He just saw a multitude of people. Saw the sick amongst them and was moved with compassion. The miracles of Jesus proved the compassion of God. But the third not so important, and I dare say most important thing that the miracles of Jesus was to prove is this. It was a symbolic demonstration of spiritual restoration. Did you hear what I said? It was a symbolic demonstration of spiritual restoration. And you want to understand what I mean, maybe, but as I explain that, it's going to become clearer to you. You see, many times in the Bible... Poverty and sickness was used as a metaphor for spiritual inadequacy. Many times in the Bible. So the Bible tells us, for instance, in Luke chapter 4 verse 18, Jesus was quoting Isaiah 66 verse 1. And it says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. And every good Bible student knows that poor there was symbolic, was metaphoric, it was a metaphor for a spiritual condition, otherwise, at face value, you'll be insinuating that Jesus' gospel is only for poor people. Are you getting what I'm saying? Which is not true. So, metaphor. The poor there was just a metaphor, a spiritual condition. Blessed are the poor in spirit, not in money. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So, when he said, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He was referring metaphorically to his spiritual condition. He has sent me to heal. 
The same way poor or poverty was a metaphor for his spiritual condition, healing here was a metaphor for his spiritual condition to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and to listen, he said, the recovery of sight to the blind. This also was metaphorical. The recovery of sight to the blind to set at liberty those who are oppressed. You see, the Bible tells us popular texts, Isaiah chapter 53 verse 5, it says, but he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. I know a lot of people have used this for physical healing, and well, that's not exactly out of order. I wish I had time to explain this to you and explain how it was actually quoted in the book of Matthew and the true context of it. But just looking at this, he was wounded for our what? Is that a spiritual condition or not? He was bruised for our what? The chastisement of our peace was upon him and by his stripes. Listen, he's referring to the same thing. The wounding, the bruising, and the stripes all refer to the same action. And by his stripes we are healed. Healed of what? Our transgressions and our iniquities. Listen, there are myriads of texts that talk directly about physical healing. This is not one of them. When you read from verse 1 to the end, it was about redemption. Beginning to end. You can't mistake the context. But what is important is for you to realize, you know, I could go on and on. There's so many examples that show you metaphorically sickness used to describe spiritual inadequacy. So he healed the sick amongst other reasons aforementioned to show that he is capable of saving men. Did you hear what I said? Apart from his compassion, Apart from a demonstration of divine approval, Jesus healed the sick to show symbolically that he is capable of saving men. And the logic is simply this. A God who can save men should be able to heal. It is troublesome to believe that a God who cannot heal can save. Because saving is more difficult do you know what it means to be saved? That no matter how many years men are dead, at the trump of God, the dead in Christ will rise. This is deeper than raising Lazarus. Lazarus was dead for this. Listen, it doesn't matter how many thousand years. At the trump of God, there will be a mass resurrection. And then we will live literally not metaphorically, not symbolically, literally in a new body. Do you know the amount, the kind of power it will take to do that? Now, if you walk the face of the earth and you preach such a gospel, uh, you have to show. You have to show. You promise people eternal life. Ah, you must heal a dick. <laughs> it only follows. It is troublesome to believe 
that a God who cannot save, who cannot heal, will save. Because salvation is more difficult. And so, there is something people need to pay more attention to. When you look at the healings in Jesus' Jesus' ministry, there was a deeper intent that people did not see. A deeper intent. So now, you know the story. Jesus ruined the burial, you know. People were crying. All of a sudden, they, they started shouting shouts of joy because Lazarus had, you know, had been raised from the dead. You know the story. But now, before he raises Lazarus, he preaches a sermon. And you need to pay attention to what he said. I mean, why, why would he? Just raise him up. Why are you preaching? He's preaching the gospel. What he said is the gospel. In John chapter 11, verse 25, you need to see this for yourself. This is good stuff. Pay attention. John eleven twenty five. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He didn't, he didn't just say, I came to raise Lazarus. He said, I'm resurrection. Are you paying attention? I am resurrection. I am life. This is not just about what I give, but who I am. This is the gospel. You have to see the correlation between this and what he said in John 14, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Same thing. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. So he's not just talking about Lazarus. He's talking about everybody, dead and alive. This is the gospel. And he said, do you believe this? And she said, yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming the world. Listen, so what he was asking her to believe was not that she can ra- he can raise Lazarus. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. That's not what he was asking her to believe. She believed the gospel. What she believed was the gospel. And so, Jesus raising Lazarus up was proof that at the end, he will raise all men. That's what he was proving. One more time. The title of the sermon is what? What to do with miracles. Because miracles have a purpose. They are pointing to something. They are like signposts. They are not an end in themselves. John chapter 9. This is particularly striking for many reasons. One simple reason is, listen, there are some miracles that Jesus did that made him stand out. Nobody had ever cast a demon out until Jesus. People had raised the dead. People had multiplied bread. Elisha did it. You say, oh, he turned water to wine. Moses turned water to blood. Water to blood is more difficult. Comparatively, listen, do you understand what I'm saying? Because scientifically, you can make wine. You can't make blood scientifically. If someone points at river and it turns to blood, aha. <laughs> but then Jesus casts out devils. 
10, Jesus opened blind eyes. Jesus was the first person to heal a blind person. So dead people were raised, but no blind. Never in history before Jesus had it ever happened. Why did God reserve that miracle for Jesus? You're about to find out. Are you getting this? So now, you know the story. Jesus heals this guy who had been blind from birth. And then much later, out of jealousy, they had kicked him out of the, the, the guy who could now see from the synagogue. And verse 35 of John 9, the Bible says, Jesus heard that he had been cast out and he found him. He said unto him, do you believe in the son of God? And he answered and said, who is, who is he, Lord, that I may believe in him? And Jesus said unto him, you have both seen him. Do you see how powerful this is? Telling a man who was blind, you have seen him. Are you getting this? This is the sweeter part of the miracle. Not just that now you can see, but you can see Jesus. He says, you have both seen him, and it is he who is talking to you. Then he said, Lord, I believe, and he worshipped him. And Jesus said, for judgment I am coming to this world, that those who do not see may what? And that those who see may be what? Now, he's explaining the theology of the miracle. So, this is the real spiritual intent of what I did. That those who do not see may see. Just in case you don't know, he's talking spiritually. Otherwise, when he says that those who see may be blind, Jesus did not make anybody blind. So he was talking spiritually. All right. Look at verse 40. He says, then some of the Pharisees who were with him heard these words and said unto him, are we blind also? They knew what he was talking about. And you know what he said? Jesus said unto them, if you were blind, you would have no sin. But now you say we see, therefore your sin remains. So listen, as a charismatic generation, we miss the real intent. Do you understand what I'm saying? This consumer mindset, you know, has made us to miss the real focus. There's a reason for what he did. A deeper intention he had. You know, we, just two weeks ago, thereabouts, I was in, at a, I was with, with our Ibadan church. And as we were preparing for the program, 4 a.m. in the morning, I woke up Pastor K and Pastor T to pray with me. And as we were praying, the Lord said to me, he said, as a sign that the ears of this city is open to you, I will open a deaf ear. So I stopped them and I said, this is what the Lord just said. And then the opening night, if you watched, if you followed the program, the opening night, I actually said it. I said, the Lord said that as a sign. So as great as that miracle is, listen, 
I can't get over miracles, big and small. In fact, there is no small miracle. Do you know what it means? A girl in her 20s, deaf from birth. How do you explain it medically? Someone touched me. Listen, that video I posted was, was the abridged version. She was down for, for a while, you know. The power hit her and she was rolling, 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 and we waited. Picked her up, you know, she was still trying to get herself consciousness, and I started doing like this. And she, she, she all of a sudden she realizes, I'm hearing her, she starts. She, <laughs> Hallelujah. Hallelujah. You know, and now, now that's great. But what touched me the most is the association between physic, physically hearing and spiritually hearing. Very much like the Jesus of the Bible. What to do with miracles? Hallelujah. So the Bible says, Acts 1.8, these signs, no, sorry, Acts 1.8 says, you shall receive power. I know it's just stage fright. After that, the Holy Ghost is come on you. It's okay now. <laughs> you shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost is come on you. And you shall be what? <laughs> so it's for a reason. This is the design of charismatic ministry. For witnessing. And even though witnessing literally was for people who walked with Jesus in his early ministry, I've explained that to you before. But actually, those who came along the way, like Stephen and Philip and co., who were not there in the early ministry of Jesus, picked on a similar assignment, testifying by faith that Jesus is raised from the dead with the miraculous. Hallelujah. So now you look at that and you wonder, 2,000 years after, how did we miss it? How come Christians are using miracles just for self-preservation and not for ministry and not for witnessing, for self, just to improve yourself? How did we miss it? Because there is a purpose to it. And so when in Acts chapter 3, a guy who had been lame from his mother's womb is walking. And everybody is looking at Peter with fascination. He doesn't immediate, immediately share of tracts saying, come to our church, we are starting a healing service. He said, why look here on us? As if by our power of holiness we have done this. God has glorified his son, Jesus. He says, whom you slew. God has glorified his son, Jesus. In his name, through faith in his name, he has given this man perfect soundness in the presence of you all. So the miracles are to direct the attention of a generation to the message. And that's what we must do. Don't get carried away. Listen, the paradox in the early church is this. You see people who raised the dead and well people who willingly died for the same gospel. So you now have to investigate and see it was never really about healing. 
It couldn't be about self-preservation. If it is about self-preservation, how come people who had no problem endured hardship and persecution willingly and were killed? So it's not just, it's not fun and games. It's not just self-preservation. I love myself and God loves me, so everything has to, has to be all right. It's deeper than that. God does love you. But listen, when God calls you, you have to realize there's a purpose bigger than you. More important than your self-gratification. You are not growing until you understand this. If you are paying attention, let me know. So now, this trend is as old as the Bible. Because when God walked the children of Israel through the Red Sea, what a great miracle it was. Do you know what it means to part a sea? Listen, parting a swimming pool is cool enough. Ah, if you see, if someone should divide a swimming pool, that's cool. Not, I'm sure not all of us can swim here. And you part a swimming pool, that's cool. Then you part a sea. The Bible says that the walls, I mean, the sea to the left and to the right congealed. The first aquarium known to the world. It became a wall, a glass wall. And they were walking through. Eh? Listen, they must have walked for days. Think about it. For days, you are witnessing, you are literally sustained by a miracle to your left and to your right. But this is what God does. And this is what this generation is missing. Right after that testimony, right after the Red Sea, you enter the wilderness of Shore. And God did it to test the people. Think of how much time God spent luring them. Moses said, how would they believe? He said, drop your rod. It will turn to a serpent. You know, pick it back. You know, all the plagues they saw in Egypt, it was enough for them to believe God and to move on to deeper things in God. God was using the miracles to lure them to relationship. Are you getting this? But many people in this age are like the children of Israel. You get to the wilderness of shore. You forget all the former miracles. You start grumbling. Let me show you what the Bible says. I told you this is Bible study, right? All right. So look at Exodus chapter 15 from verse 24. We'll read verse 24 and 25. Exodus 15, 24. The Bible says, and then the people complained against Moses, saying, what shall we drink? So he cried out to God... And the Lord showed him a tree. He says, when he cast it into the waters, the waters were made sweet. He says, there he made a statute and an ordinance for them, and there he tested them. How was he testing them? <laughs> By doing good. <laughs> By working a miracle. He's luring them to relationship. After that, they entered the wilderness of sin. Exodus chapter 16, verse 3. 
And the children of Israel said unto him, Oh, that we would have died in the hand of the Lord in Egypt. Why bring us all this way here, Lord, if, you want, if your goal was to kill us? You would have just killed us in Egypt. That's what they were saying to God. Have you seen people, when they are desperate for a miracle, they say silly things to God out of desperation. And guess what? Many of them receive miracles. But the reason they receive the miracles is because the days of ignorance, God winked at. He's calling every man to what? So a time is going to come where a multitude that gathered to Jesus, not to hear what he's saying, but just because he can work miracles, and because he multiplied five loaves and two fish, they came again, he multiplied seven loaves and two fish, they will come the third time, ask for bread, and he will say no. Labor not for meat that perishes. I am the bread. Stop seeking the bread that I give, but the bread that I am. Are you getting this? So, so there has to be that shift. But when you are a baby, he's just throwing it at you. But he expects you to grow. And so the Bible tells us, Exodus 16. They said, oh, you would have killed us in Egypt when we sat by pots of meat. And when we ate bread to full, he says, what we were enjoying, imagine, as slaves in Egypt was better. He says, you brought us out here in the wilderness to kill us. Kill the whole assembly with hunger. Verse 4. Everybody read verse 4 together. One, two, go. Then the Lord said to Moses, behold, I will rain bread from heaven, and the people shall go out, and they shall gather quarter every day, that I may test them. So listen, just pay attention to what you just read. I will rain down bread from heaven. And the people shall go out and gather a certain quota every day that I may test them. So the miracle is a what? He's luring them. He kept telling Moses, I will see if they will follow my statutes or not. I will see if they will follow my statutes or not. God used miracles to lure hardened people. And so, like I said, one day a multitude gathers in front of Jesus in John 6. What is fascinating is that the people were religious about their selfishness. They had scriptures to quote. They said, if you are a true prophet, do what Moses did. Moses fed the people regularly with manna. Is that not Rema? That's revelation. Guess what? What they said was biblically correct. So you can have a theology around your selfishness. And then he looked at them and he said, except you eat my flesh. He, he was that gory for a reason. So that only the people who really were interested in him will stay. Let me show you a text that you very likely may not have seen before. Let me not say very likely. But you mean, turn your Bibles to John chapter 2. <laughs> John chapter 2 from verse 23. You have to open this yourself. You need to see this yourself. It says, Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover in the feast day, 
Many believed in him when they saw the miracles which he did. They believed in him when they what? Verse 24. Everybody read together, I want to go. Have you seen this? Guess what? He kept healing, but there was no commitment. Miracles are not always a proof of divine approval. You can gather a crowd of immature bunches, of an immature bunch, and the whole city is hailing you, whereas what Jesus would have done in your stead is to speak the truth and let everybody walk away. <laughs> Listen, thousands of people left Jesus in one day. The church shrunk. Shrunk to 12. Do you know what that means? It means God is not fascinated by a crowd. If I had said this years ago, they would say, because your church is not large. <laughs> In a generation that is easily impressed, let it be known that it is not all types of crowds that impress God. I'm happy that you all came to church, but why? What did you come to hear? Because in our kingdom, the what is not as important as the why. God is testing your motives. Please, are you listening to me? I said, the what is not as important as the what? As the what? So what exactly are you hearing? You pray every day, but what are you praying? Do you understand what I'm saying or not? Souls must remain our focus. Before I continue, I want to play a short clip for you. Media team, get ready. And just signal me when you're ready. There's a video I want you to watch. Let me tell you, in case you don't already know, this is a special month of consecration. And this month, we must go back to the fundamentals, remind ourselves why we are children of God and what God really expects from us. Because whilst many people approach, I'm speaking figuratively, the throne room of God, to bombard him with, with requests. When you get there, you will be bombarded with responsibilities. And with the voice of God asking, who will go for me? Are you getting this? Who will I send? This is, listen, one of the first few things God said to me when I started hearing him. I was in church. I can't even remember what the pastor was preaching. And he said this to me clearly, I'll never forget. He said, children are the responsibility of the kingdom, but sons are responsible for the kingdom. Meaning at some point you grow up and you take responsibility. Stop playing church, give me, give me, you know, every, that's your prayer. And you don't even see anything wrong. 
Do you know how sensitive the spiritual climate in this country is? Do you know just some wrong moves? And the church might be faced with the greatest opposition this country has ever seen. If you are not praying about that already, ah, it will be me training you. Are you ready? No, media team, I mean. <laughs> media team, are you ready? All right. <laughs> you guys are a lot. All right, play it. Zechariah, he was a nice person. He was a decent person. He was very smart. He was the only Christian in the whole of the school. And I hated him. And because I thought as a Muslim, I must be better than him. But he was better than I. We start to beat him every single day that we come to school. And we agreed on that night, we need to kill him. It was dark, it was uh, cold, and we went ahead of him. And we were five of us. We climbed a tree and we waited there. And from far away, we saw that a torch coming. And the light became bigger and bigger as it approaches us. And the minute that he just went under the tree, we jumped at him. He was crying, he was screaming, he was shouting. We broke his arm, we broke his leg. He started to bleed. And because he started to scream and begging for help, I put my hand in his mouth so that no noise will come out of him. It's similar when you are slaughtering a sheep, you know, it's just shivering and the others were, were beating him. I felt very proud. You were actually doing something for, for Allah. You know, you want to please him. And suddenly, he could no longer breathe and we could not hear his voice. We left him in the wood between life and death. We went back, you wash yourself, and you pray. And Zechariah never came back. We've never seen him again. I was born and raised up in a very, very fanatic Muslim family. When I was a child, my father brought me to a Quran school. I was only eight years old, and my father just dropped me there. They shaved my head. We sat in a circle. The sheikh sat in the middle of the circle and he has a very long whip. I was forced to memorize the Quran. Every mistake that you do, this whip will just come right in the middle of your head. You're not allowed to cry because in our culture they tell you men never cry. I was crying every single night. And they told me, you belong to the Islamic Ummah. And that's why you fight for it. You stay loyal to it. I started to hate people, to hate everybody who's not a Muslim. And I especially used to hate the Jews. So I was preparing myself to go and fight for Allah in the Jihad. But every night I went to bed, and when we put the light off, I did not know what will happen with me if I die. 
My cousin was severely sick. And the doctors, they said, he's going to die. They gave him only a couple of days. And when they came to people, they were Coptic Christians. And one of them wanted to greet me. And then I saw he had a cross. And then I pulled my hand back. I said, well, I'm not going to touch a hand with a cross. And then he said to me, we hear that this child is sick. Who would like to pray for him? And only out of politeness, I told them, okay. And they started to speak to God like a person that he speaks to his friend. They said, God, please heal this child. The minute that they said, Amen, this child opened his eyes for the first time in four weeks. He started to move his hands. He started to speak. He sat down in his bed and he started to walk. And one of those two persons who prayed sat down with me and he said to me, you know what? The real miracle is that God wants to change your heart. Do you believe that Yeshua is alive? And I told him, yeah. Because according to the Islamic tradition, God took him to heaven and he's alive and he will come back one day. And he said to me, because he's alive, you can speak to him. That changed my entire life. And when I started to read the scripture, nobody needed to convince me to love the Jewish people. The only way for Muslims to start to love the Jews is when they meet Yeshua. I loved my family, I loved my father. I loved my mother and I loved my community. And when I decided to follow Yeshua, my grandfather and my father said to me, you are no longer one of us. They made a funeral. They invited friends and family. They brought a coffin to the cemetery and they said, our son is dead. To be declared dead with no family. I said to God, where are you? I heard this voice and this voice told me, you know that the grave where your name is written, you know that grave is empty. And guess what? My grave is also empty. I went to Egypt for the first time after many years, and I was in a pastoral conference. And one of the Sudanese pastors came to me, it's an elderly man, gray hair, started to speak to me and he asked me, where did you come from? I told him my story. He started to cry. And then I asked him, why are you crying? And he said to me, do you remember me? My name is Zachariah. And suddenly, I remembered him. The last time I saw him, it was in that dark night. I could hear suddenly the way that he was screaming, even though that was 25 years. Suddenly I started to see his broken arm and broken legs. I started to see the scars which I caused him. I started to be full of shame. I was a bad person, yeah. I was terrible. So Zakaria 
looked me straight into the eye again and he said to me, answer because you hated me so much. I was always praying for you. He opened his Bible and the minute he opened his Bible, I saw that my name was written in the first page. I hated him, he prayed for me. On that day, God confronted me. He said to me, even before you start to think about me, I was thinking about you. To love those who hate you, you need someone whose name is Yeshua. Praise the Lord. So let me announce to you, the day you chose to follow this ministry, your chance at mediocre Christianity expired. God has a purpose for your life. And you need to understand, in the very declaration of the gospel is a call to ministry. He said, in the last day, the great day of the feast, John 7, 37, Jesus stood and cried with a loud voice, if any man thirst, let him come to me and drink. He says, he that believes in me, he didn't say we'll be satisfied, even if there is a satisfaction in salvation. He says, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water, meaning you will not just be satisfied, you become a dispenser. On your account, other needs around you will be met. And so, if you've been in church, but you don't have this growing sense of urgency and responsibility, you've heard the gospel wrong. Because the call is not just to drink till you are satisfied. But the prophecy is, my cup runs over. There is no other effective way to be a good Christian than to be in ministry. So with that, God was in Christ, reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them, and has given us the word, the message of reconciliation. Don't ever again say you don't know your purpose in life. He has given you a message. He says, now therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. I'm happy that you're making money, but in all you're making and in all you're getting, make your life count for the gospel. Hallelujah. So as the Lord prepared me for this meeting, she gave me a pictorial representation and he described Christians this way. He said there were five friends who were summoned to a king. The Lord told me this. This was the first time he had ever spoken to me in story format. Five friends who were summoned to a king. And all of them had the opportunity to go in to see the king one after the other. And the first one came out and he had been given a very special horse. The second one came out and he had been given jewelries. The third one came out and he had been given fancy clothes. 
The fourth one came out with his own gifts. And the fifth one came out with nothing. And his friends were laughing. Why did you come out with nothing? And he said, the king gave me his name. And so, everything the king had became his. He said, the problem with many Christians is that they are knocking and approaching to ask for certain things when I've given them all things. So it turns out that you'll be more effective in demonstrating power and listen, all the things that you seek healing, they all answer to intimacy. If you will just be invested in your relationship with God instead of seeking things and asking every day, you will discover, listen, there are two categories of people in the body of Christ. There are people who are always fighting spiritual battles. And then there are people who go the Jesus route. When you just enter the synagogue, because of intimacy, demons are screaming. Guess what? By design, in case no one has told you, by design, miracles are for evangelism. By design. You shall receive power and you shall be witnesses. Meaning there is a dimension of power you will not see until you get responsible. It is not for self-preservation. It's not so that you can feel cool about yourself and feel you have something that the person by your side does. It's not, it's not to fuel competition. It's for the work. So, your assignment as a soldier for Christ starts this night. In case you've not been enlisted, I enlist you in the name of Jesus. And from today, your prayer points change. For God's sake, pray selfless prayers once in a while. And understand that you have precedents in the Bible that like Job, by praying for your friends, all the prayers you have been praying for yourself will get answered. This is a simpler way I'm telling you. That when God asks Solomon, what do you want? And Solomon says, just give me wisdom to lead your people. God says, what? You didn't ask for the life of your enemies. You didn't ask for this. I will give you wealth like no man has ever seen. Did you hear that? All the things you are asking for are on the side of consecration. Hallelujah. You're going to pray a strange prayer. By supernatural intervention, let there be dramatic conversions. If that testimony you just heard challenged you, you're going to pray. Let there be dramatic conversions. In the name of the one who appeared in front of Saul and said, why are you persecuting me? Let there be dramatic conversions in this nation. Let there be dramatic conversions in this nation. Let there be dramatic conversions to Christianity in this nation. Let there be dramatic conversions 
visions of Jesus, visions of God in this nation, dramatic conversions. your Bibles Revelation chapter 12 verse 11 Revelation chapter 12 verse 11 one of the things that God is going to do in this day is to raise bold evangelists listen you respond to persecution by intensifying preaching. That's the biblical response. You shift gears. We do more for the gospel. <laughs> because it's a hard thing to kick against the pricks. He's developing soldiers. He called us soldiers. He said we shouldn't concern ourselves with the affairs of civilians. There are some, pe there are some things that untrained Christians pray. And it's okay. Our priorities are different. Did you hear what I said? And when you align yourself this way, blessings will start pursuing you. I know what I'm saying. I know what I'm saying. This is a more excellent way. Bold evangelists. Let me tell you one secret. If you don't learn to preach, it will affect your flow in the miraculous. Because they go hand in hand. They go hand in hand. So if you don't have the boldness to witness Jesus. So it is when you sit by the well that you have 
word of knowledge about that woman and all the troubles she's having in her marriage. You don't have word of knowledge in your room, in your sitting room. Those gifts of the spirit function in the field. They function best in the field. And that's why some people, they see maybe their man of God on stage demonstrating gifts of the spirit and they covet, covet, covet. They are wondering why it's not working. The difference is I am doing ministry. You want it just to take your business to the next level. That's the problem. Revelation chapter 12, verse 11. This is one powerful text, but many people only emphasize the first part of it. Read together one to go. And they overcame him by the blood of lamb and the word of their testimony. And they did not love their lives to death. Hallelujah. Both go hand in hand. There is an approach to gospel preaching. If you want to overcome, there is a selflessness. Ah, are you getting what I'm saying? So you're going to pray. The prayer he asks for. And when we pray the prayer in asks for, we will see the signs that came and asked for. They're going to pray. Let this day be a fresh baptism of boldness. Boldness to stand for Jesus in a generation of contradiction. Boldness to stand for Jesus in a generation of naysayers. To stand. Stand boldly. Listen, the Bible says, as they prayed, the place where they were shook. Hallelujah. I don't care how God shakes this place. If he shakes the foundation or he shakes you, there must be a shaking. Hallelujah. And you're going to raise your voice and say, in the name of Jesus, from today, I will not be mute. I will not be mute. I will preach this gospel with boldness. I will tell the untold. I will tell my friends. Like that guy in the story, they may beat me, but it's okay. I will tell the untold. There is a fresh baptism of boldness. Timidity dies in the name of Jesus. A fresh baptism of boldness. Fresh sense of urgency. Abatons and ikifaktes ipiteleportos randungrada gande giba katongedes mandonga sapa ibelero zikitu zikite baleru tikete le batoki pekatos vale bataya ambanda katons ensungskates beleron de rebedogida. Thank you, Lord. 
In Jesus' mighty name we've prayed. You pray one final prayer. It's a prayer of consecration. He says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, sacrifice, holy and acceptable. That's the only acceptable service to God. That's the only type of Christianity that makes sense to God. There is reasonable service. You don't serve God the way you think. Just come to church once in a while, give regularly, and think that's okay. He wants your life. Father, from today, from today, I walk for you. I talk for you. In you, I live and move and have my being. I walk in the direction of purpose. I refuse to waste my time. I refuse to waste my life. I take up my cross. I die daily. I follow. He said, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? From today, I realign my priorities. I realign my desires. I put aside besetting sins. I run with patience to rest set before me. Looking up to Jesus, the author and finisher of my faith. Thank you, Father. In Jesus' mighty name we've prayed. So listen, start practicing. Practice consecration. Practice it. You must have a prayer life this month. Starting this month, what time of the day do you pray? Yeah, I know you are led by the Spirit. Once in a while, you are just led. What time do you pray? What time do you study? How do you study? How much of study have you done this year? Stop playing church. Stop pretending. You are either studious or you are not. Hallelujah. Thank you for listening. We are sure that you have been blessed. For inquiries, reach us on our helpline 0809-996-7000. Blessings.